The following podcast is a production of Commercial Investment Real Estate Magazine, the official publication of CCIM Institute. For more on the latest trends, best practices, and continuing education in all areas of the industry, visit our website at ccim.com and sign up for our education e-newsletter. Welcome to a special episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. I'm Nicholas Leiter, Senior Content Editor for the magazine. With the coronavirus pandemic dominating headlines and impacting economies across the globe, commercial real estate professionals are already beginning to feel the effects on their communities and their businesses. In this episode, you'll hear from Casey Conway, CCIM Institute Chief Economist and Director of Research and Corporate Engagement at the Alabama Center for Real Estate. In his conversation with Larry Guthrie, CCM Institute Director of Communications, he shares invaluable insights into what's next for the industry in the face of the pandemic, advice for practitioners on how to weather the storm, and methods to help future-proof new investments. Hi, I'm Larry Guthrie, Director of Communications for CCIM Institute, and I'm here with Casey Conway, CCIM Institute's Chief Economist and Director of Research and Corporate Engagement for the Alabama Center for Real Estate at the University of Alabama. Thanks for joining me today, Casey. Great. Thanks, Larry. Good to be with you. There's so much in the media right now about COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, that I thought we needed to hear from our resident expert on its impact on the commercial real estate industry, and also if you could share some helpful insights. So this isn't the first epidemic we've had to deal with. There was uh, MERS and SARS in 2012 and the 2009 H1N1 flu pa- pandemic. Why is this one having such an effect on commercial real estate? And are we too far gone to stem the tide at this point? Yeah, re- really question. Looking at my uh, at my at my uh, 401k, I, I feel like the tide's gone out <laughs> and uh, everything there. I think you ask a really good question. You know, what happened because we get these normal bad flu seasons, and then seems like about every decade we get one of these um, really serious um, flu viruses. Uh, but what's what's happened here versus say the H1N1 back in 2009 or MERS and SARS in 2012? And I, you know, try to be very neutral and look at it, you know, common sense. What are two things that are very different today versus, say, a decade or close to a decade ago? I think one of them is our our degree of social media. We can know everything in more detail, more quickly, more fluidly than we ever have before. So anything kind of disruptive or bad that happens, you know, it's it's almost my gosh, you know, we're going to. You know, we're going to have everything known about it and every element of it dissected and communicated, you know, before the five o'clock news, um, whether we wanted to know it or not. So I think the social media has enabled, you know, across geographies, across time zones, information to really be um, be shared and elevated much more rapidly and quickly. The second thing I think is, is if you go back to 2009 and even through 2012, we were already reeling from a very major um, financial crisis, housing crisis, financial crisis, the Great Recession. So our focus was already more along the line of how do I preserve my house from saying being foreclosed and wow, we got a bad flu season and maybe I need to quarantine. So we may have been, you know, honestly, more focused, more distracted, 
um, because of what was going on with the Great Recession, that, you know, the flu just kind of seemed like, well, one more bad thing, but it can't be anywhere bad as saving the banking system and houses and foreclosure. Where this time around, really, we entered into this situation on a really pretty healthy economy um, and things going pretty well. So a negative event probably was able to capture, you know, more attention and get more broadly communicated. I think the other element is look at our global connectivity um, compared even just from 10 years ago. So you look at how much more globally connected we are, how much more travel we do, uh, you know, look at the trade deals, look at what we just went through the last almost two years on the, you know, the battles over the tariffs and trade deals. And we were discovering all of this type stuff. So I think also being much more globally connected in uh, the transportation and communication and trade and shipping, that really elevated, um, I think, the ability for something like this to really travel globally much more quickly than maybe it did a decade ago. That makes perfect sense. And, you know, kind of speaking, you brought up travel. It it leads perfectly into uh, poor hospitality and travel. I mean, they're taking some obvious hits in the short term. And that asset class has been priced to perfection to begin with. So it really wasn't in the best place to even try and withstand any type of disruption. But looking ahead, I mean, what should folks in that sector be keeping in mind for future investments? If they're looking to invest in a new hospitality investment in the future, is there anything that they could be doing, considerations that they should be thinking about to try and create a safety net on the front end? So great question, Larry, because the biggest challenge anybody in the hospitality or transportation tourism sector is facing today is still the unknown. We, we haven't seen this fully play out yet. Um, example I look to is, and I'm always looking for those um, bellwether indicators that tell me when the things turn one way or the other. And so one that hit me yesterday was, I'm still doing some travel. Um, crazy rich, you economists don't know any better. And so uh, I was trying to book some travel this week for out in May and June, thinking maybe things will be settled down. But I wasn't willing to take the financial risk in case things don't. So I thought, well, I'll just go ahead and spend the 20 bucks for the travel insurance. Guess what I couldn't find? I couldn't find travel insurance. It's all been removed from the market. So that's going to hurt and prolong things longer for hospitality. I think those that own hospitality assets, invest in that space or looking at it, you need to step back and reflect on what brought you to that property type in that space, why, and where were you going into this um, particular period? So like you said, we were priced to perfection. The market, you know, we had near record revenues per available room, average daily occupancy and rental rates were, you know, had, had had a good run. So we were probably priced to a point not to be able to withstand any kind of disruption. So where I look at the floors, I start to go back and look at things like replacement costs. What does it cost per room to still put a new hospitality asset back to work? And I'm going to look at those prices, whether I'm a hospitality REIT, whether I'm a hotel owner and I've got properties and I want to negotiate with my lenders for some you know, uh, debt restructuring. I want to have a good focus. What is the replacement cost? Because that's going to be kind of that threshold that if I start to go way below there, then I know I either have more room to fight or you know, maybe I, maybe I don't, maybe it's gone too far. I can't get out of it, but I think there's a long ways to go. We still don't know the psychological hit to the consumer and the traveler. We don't know the behavior mechanisms yet from businesses that really, if you think back to 2009, one of the lessons from 
um, the whole terrorism, uh, 9-11 and, and all of that, was that we kind of created this new business called co-working. And we work came about and we did move a lot more of our work behavior into more remote and being comfortable with that. And I think this maybe accelerates that. So it's not just hospitality, but maybe office take a, take a little bit of a hit on this. So I think the unknowns are too, are too much right now to tell us specifically what numbers to put around it. But I would always go back to the fundamentals. You know, what, what's replacement cost? Why did I get into this space? And then try to figure out what's the travel behavior going to restore to. And if we learned after 9-11, it really was a couple or three years for it to fully come back. So I would be looking at a horizon as this isn't a, you know, two or three month disruption to the hospitality and travel industry. This is one that's probably got systemic impact that lasts, you know, one, two or three years. Wow. So looking ahead to the longer term, just across the board, all property sectors, what do you see as the next wave of impact on commercial real estate? Yeah, so my biggest concern is in the capital side, um, because it's always the bankers that, you know, tend to freak out <laughs> and they freak out because their regulator freaks out. So it's not always the poor banker's fault. It's usually what their regulator does. And we can look back to, you know, what happened in the, you know, the financial crisis and the housing crisis and how things locked up. And it took a long time for the banking sector to realize what are we going to do with commercial real estate and housing. So I would be really watching that. I would be making an extra effort to be communicating with my investment partners, whether they're debt or equity, as to, you know, where are they? What's their thinking? I'd be looking at my capital structure. Do I have enough equity to ride out three months, six months or a year? Is there an opportunity with these low rates right now where banks, you know, are still willing to maybe um, keep your line of credit active or extend it or give you a new one? And maybe it would be prudent to draw down that line of credit right now to have the cash handy to be able to weather a longer storm. So I think the the next impact is really going to be on the capital side. We'll see it in say first, the best state is out there on the CMBS market. I think we're going to see a pretty good spike over the next 90 days in CMBS delinquency rates. We got down to record lows. I think that's going to revert. And I think the next property type that takes it as hard as hospitality is retail. So retail was already coming off a lot of distress. We had record number of store closings last year of 9,300. We already had 2,000 store closings announced in the first you know, six weeks of the year before this blew up. And I think what we're going to see on the retail is a stratification between two types of retail. If you're in the retail sector and you own or invest in retail, begin to really think about segmenting your retail between that which is more consumer staple oriented. And by that, I mean, think of a Costco, a Walmart, a grocery store, because even if we're working from home or we're self-quarantining, somebody's got to go and get those consumer staples, the toilet paper, the, you know, masks, the, you know, the medicines or whatever. The other is look at those that are more consumer discretionary, where if I'm concerned about my job or layoff or less income, I'm going to cut back on the discretionary items. So think about a target. And before this all blew up, we saw that already in the earnings between, say, a Walmart and a Costco and then a target a couple of weeks ago where target actually turned in really good numbers, but the market sold them off because they felt they were too consumer discretionary. So I'd look at my retail properties. 
in my portfolio. And I would really start segmenting those that are discretionary versus staples. So if I've got things like dry cleaners and hair salons and restaurants and kids' gymboree's or whatever, where people pull back uh, on those type things, I'm probably going to have more distress and more severity there than I am on my neighborhood center that's got a good grocery store that's a national brand name or that's got a Walmart or some a Costco or somebody like that. So I think that in the retail sector, the discretionary segment, the restaurants and things I can cut back on are probably what are at, are at more risk after that. And I think on the other major asset types, office, I think we're going to see a slowdown in leasing and transactions. Uh, companies are pulling back. They're canceling CapEx. They're canceling expansion-type plans. So companies that might have thought about expanding uh, their square footage or doing a move are probably going to pull back on that. They're going to reassess how this stay-at-home work evolves from what it did after 9-11 to now what it does in a public health crisis. Um, I've had a number of clients tell me that they've got whole organizations and, and tenants in their buildings that are going, they're telling everybody to go on complete um, work remote for the next two weeks to see how it works, what bugs there are, what things they need to do in terms of new business resumption practices. So I think the office, I would be, want to be very much in touch with some of my major tenants and, and corporate entities to see what they're doing in their business resumption planning and how that might affect them. But I, I think the office is going to see a very substantial slowdown in leasing activity. Um, these assets, though, are longer term leased. So just like in CMBS, you didn't see the problems and the credit issues develop for, you know, three, four, five years after 9-11 because those leases were longer in duration. The other one, though, that I would put on the radar would be on housing. So right now, everybody thinks that housing is just immune, but, you know, near free money. Uh, you know, who can imagine a 10-year treasury at like 50 basis points, well below one, uh, the 30-year in a one and a quarter range. These are just unheard of numbers. So refinancing, so mortgage applications were up, I think, like double over what they were in January. 75% of that is refinanced, though, and only 25% is new. I don't think we're seeing any slowdown in sales traffic or new home sale contracts. And my basis for that is I've touched base with a lot of public builders over the weekend and Monday, Tuesday, to ask them about their sales traffic reports this weekend. All of them reported very strong sales traffic, um, good contract writing. The banks are still doing mortgages. Freddie, Fannie, and HUD are still open accepting stuff. Um, but here's where, the, here's where the complications come on the housing. All that stays great until we hit the wall where companies start laying people off. And so if you begin to follow in that category in a market or with a company in a major exposure in a market where you've got layoffs occurring and start to see the unemployment rate move from our low three and a half to move more to four and to five, that's that psychology impact that's going to affect folks. That's what may slow down the housing side. But remember, we still started from a shortage of housing inventory. We still started with elevated home prices. And so this, this may bring down some of the affordability issues. Um, and it may give time for maybe inventory to come back in the market. But for the, for the housing side, I'd be looking at what happens with labor. Do we see a big uptick in layoffs and whatnot? That's what'll hurt the housing psychology. And on the multifamily side, like retail, I'd segment it into two categories. And the categories I would do would be the normal market um, 
a multifamily that's for the workforce and that that's student housing. So the normal market workforce is going to, they're going to work through this. Um, they got to continue to have a place to live, a place to quarantine, self-quarantine. Um, I think what landlords may do is not um, dissimilar to what they did during 2009 and 10. They knew where there was workforce that was being disrupted. They went in and they said, what if we redid a new 15 or 18 month lease and we give you three months free rent up front now to deal with your work disruption? So I think you're going to see multifamily landlords look to deal with that selectively on the workforce multifamily, but I'm really worried about student housing. So you look what's happening on universities that are all basically shutting down over spring break and they're going to remote. So I have a daughter coming home this weekend for spring break and she's been told, don't return to campus. We're going to be remote. University of North Carolina, Harvard, I mean, you name it, they're all going to this model. What happens to these students? Um, you know, you've got anywhere between a third and as much as a half of your student housing that's off campus, that's for rent. And we've been building a lot of student housing. And in a lot of these situations in the leases, in my daughter's lease, um, an event like a university disruption or act of God, her lease is voided. So be, because of the university saying we're going remote and all of that, she's off the hook on her lease uh, after March here. So a lot of people didn't realize that in these standard leases that they they bought or adopted from some property management entity. So I think the stress is going to be greater in student housing based on the reaction to what universities are doing and the market rent stuff will be just the, you know, the market for professionals and people that are in the workforce. I think that will go through rather unscathed. They might have to give a month or two rent abatement if they have a layoff, but I don't, I don't see that part as distressed as a student housing. Interesting. So what can what's your advice, though, for all of the commercial real estate practitioners out there? Is there a way to help mitigate the damage? Um, I know you had mentioned uh, the taking advantage of some refinancing available here. You also mentioned the differences in leases. Uh, what what advice do you have for everyone across property segments, uh, how they can possibly uh, stem or stop the help mitigate that damage. No, and that's that's really why we should exist as professional associations help give good advice. So I would I would give three terms. Number one would be communication. Number two would be think strategic, and number three would be agile. So on communication, I would not sit back and hope my tenants are fine. I would not sit back and hope that my uh, portfolio is going to be unscathed. I would not sit back and hope that my lenders are, you know, happy and not going to start, you know, you know, hurting me or being inflexible or contracting my operating line of credit. I would communicate now. The banks are being given the most flexibility. They're being communicated to by the regulators saying, do not do like what you did in 2009. Um, and so the banks do want to hear from you. These are opportunities why you're business ratios, your lending ratios, uh, everything are in really good shape today. So they're more inclined to make a credits decision to keep your line of credit, renew it, open it, um, give you some flexibility versus in three or four months from now, when you have a delinquent loan and a loan in default and the bank's got to take legal action to protect itself and make it, you know, put it on non-accrual and uh, report it to the regulators and reserve capital, they're not going to be in a very good mood. So I'd communicate. I'd communicate like the Dickens with your tenants. I was talking today, for example, I went to my dry cleaner and I asked her how she's doing. She said, what's going on? 
and uh, she's got young kids and she's not watching the news all day long in the stock market. And I kind of explained to her what, what was what was going on here with the virus. And mm-hmm. um, and she said, well, that explains it. She goes, all my business travelers haven't been mm-hmm. in this week. They've had no clothes. So, you know, something as simple as a dry cleaner, you may forget, you know, we're not traveling. I'm not taking a suit to be dry clean. So I would be in touch with my tenants to know what mix or how many of them are really experiencing distress and, and then model that in your cash flow. You know, you may find that you've got two of eight tenants that are really distressed that you got to figure out what's the impact going to be on NOI and what does that mean on your debt service coverage. So I'd communicate with my banker, I'd communicate with my tenants. Um, I would just communicate across the spectrum. Second thing is I would think strategic. There's a lot you can do when you're ahead of it and you're communicating. You know, for example, your bank may be very amenable to expanding your line of credit or giving you one right now for this purpose. The president last night talked about working with Small Business Administration to um, provide some uh, Small Business Administration uh, loans for this disruption that the banks may be able to help you facilitate. Um, so I would I would be looking at that, like on your multifamily, if you're a, if you have student. Uh, student housing in a university that's shutting down, man, I would really be looking at those leases and seeing if you have cancellation clauses, what the impact is going to be. I'd be talking to the dean. Is this going to be a thing they're thinking about for two weeks? Or like what Harvard said, Harvard indicated this is for the rest of the semester and maybe even commencement exercises. So I'd want to know you know, what's what's the dean and what's my university thinking? Are they thinking just a couple weeks? Are they thinking at the end of the semester? Um, and, and then how do I how do I do that and how do I you know, maybe how I can maybe work maybe the university might work with you on your student housing. The third thing is I would be agile. You know, there's one day it's going to be really bad. One day it's going to be really maybe it's not so bad. And I think you've got to wake up each day and, and, and be a little have, have agility in what you're what you're going to do. But just sitting back and doing nothing uh, is not a good strategy. Hope is a nice thing to have, but it's not a good business plan. So I would say communication. Think strategic and and being being agile in what what you're uh, what you can do. There's there's a lot you can do. That's good advice. So, kind of turning our attention now to supply chain, uh, it's clearly di- so disrupted at this point. Probably the worst it's been uh, that I can remember. What really needs to happen for that to recover, and how long before we you think it'll recover from this, and what can commercial real estate, what can the industry do to kind of help ensure that this level of disruption doesn't happen again? Yeah. So we'll start with the first one. You know, I've been, I've been trying to stay in touch with a lot of the port directors and those ports that have more direct exposure to Asia and China are, are really in, in dire straits. LA and Long Beach right now is having, you know, an accumulation of empty containers and not a flow of goods coming in. And China doesn't want to receive empty containers in case they have virus on them. Uh, We have longshoremen workers that are starting uh, to test positive or be quarantined. So, um, you know, that's causing labor disruption so that when when the ships do come in, it's going to be this, you know, kind of massive surge. Think back to L.A. and Long Beach and California when they had longshoremen strikes and, and vessels would sit backed up, you know, 40, 80, 120 of them until the longshoremen strike ended. And then they had this big surge and had to unload all that type stuff. So I think the West Coast ports in particular are going to be hurt. I'm worried about Houston um, with the energy. Uh, so we, we clearly have another aspect to this whole crisis, which is, you know, Russia and China 
uh, have declared war on the U.S. being energy independent and a low-cost energy producer, and um, how our energy industry is able to sustain that. You know, it's, it's amazing. We were we were through this just four years ago. <laughs> I was I was in banking back then. We had all the bad energy credits just four years ago. So Houston's going to have some issues and all of the things that we were doing to export LNG gas and the pipeline infrastructure. Uh, I think those are going to be things that are going to are going to be impacted and, and disrupted. So um, initially, we're going to have the supply chain um, slow down, and then we're going to have this huge surge when everybody starts to bring things back up. The good news is that we're seeing in South Korea, in China, you know, they're moving from you know almost idled to twenty percent to almost fifty percent capacity resuming. So that's all good. We're going to see those flow of goods come. But if we have hot spots at our ports, can we get those ships unloaded? Can we get those goods? moved through the logistics channels um, into the uh, into the marketplaces. So I think we have a ways to go. It will recover. I think we see probably a disruption at the ports that's pretty challenging into the summer. And what I hope is that the good Lord is nice to us and we don't have an active hurricane season because, boy, this is going to be one summer that we don't need an active hurricane season for our ports, particularly in the Gulf mm-hmm. and the East Coast. So true. Kind of in addition to that, I guess we got a little bit of a taste of it with tariffs, how interconnected you talk about the globally connected piece. Uh, what are your thoughts for how the industry can help kind of future proof itself from any of future outbreaks of this or any kind of biological outbreak in general? No, you ask a great question. So, you know, really with the whole, the last 18 months with the whole battle over tariffs, when it first started, I said, the tariffs aren't going to cause a recession. We're going to work through it. And what's going to happen is corporations are going to figure out how they have to adjust their supply chain. And guess what? That's exactly what we saw happen. We saw industry, business, manufacturing move out of Asia to South Korea, to Vietnam, to Mexico. And we saw companies figure out how to adjust the supply chain for the tariff issue. And I think that's what we got to think through here. Think about the tariffs, but now think about a public health crisis. What are we learning out of a public health crisis? And these isn't going to be the last one. What is it that we're learning about how where the choke points are in our supply chain? So, for example, we're discovering we've exported even the manufacturing of, you know, of our, of our masks and a lot of our um, pharmaceuticals um, that we don't control anymore. So that if, if, if we have a global crisis, you know. President says, hey, America first. Well, I'm sure over in China, they're saying China first with all the pharmaceuticals, right? Take care of their people. So I think we're going to have to revisit choke points and risks in the supply chain that emanate from a public health risk. A worthwhile example to look at for people is go back and study the public health crisis from polio. And if you if you think back to um, really from 1916 to 1955, so the, the real outbreak of the polio epidemic came in 1916 in New York, and it brought to focus both on both sides of the Atlantic how bad this virus was. We had hundreds of thousands of kids being paralyzed each year. And um, it took us until 1955 to have a vaccine, and it took us until 1994 for the World Health Organization to to pronounce that the Americas were polio-free. And we had to rethink a lot in terms of our public health. Um, we created successful organizations like the March of Dimes today that came from the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. So I think out of this one, we're going to look at a lot of things. I think one of them we're going to look at 
is food safety. We've talked a lot about the evolution of aquaponics and vertical farming, you know, our food supply chain. What do we know about it? We're going to see technology like blockchain come in so we can track. You know, think about blockchain and its value that it could have helped us with the kind of the tracking of the evolution of the spread of this through our transportation networks. So I think, you know, those are some things we're going to see in the evolution out of this. I think we're also going to see out of the evolution is another step forward in the evolution of our, of our financial structuring of credit um, to commercial real estate. In the RTC days, what we learned out of the RTC was if you had a construction loan with an SNL and that loan came due during a, a period where the market wasn't great and the houses weren't selling or, you know, the condos weren't, you know, leasing up or, or multifamily, there was no option. There was no bridge facility. There was no interest reserve. So the loan came past due and the SNL had to foreclose. There was no option. The regulator forced the foreclosure. So what we learned out of the RTC was we needed an interim facility. And that interim interim facility we created out of the RTC was called an interest reserve on a construction loan. So if your project completes when the market is in a period of disruption, you have an ability to carry it through 12, 18, or 24 months. I think what we're going to see is the evolution of that and its application maybe to the business side. So for businesses and even tenants that are, say, uh, in commercial space, how do we structure leases? How do we structure credit facilities? So if we have another public health crisis or dislocation, how do we give tenants and our borrowers and our CRE owners and investors two, three, four, maybe six months to absorb a disruption without just crashing everything and forcing it into foreclosure and causing a bank crisis and the thing dominoing. So I'm hopeful we're going to see an evolution in our food supply uh, safety, um, where a lot of these viruses uh, emanate from. I think I'm also hopeful that we're going to see some evolution in the credit facilities and things like the president's trying to encourage right now with SBA and others to give people paid leave to do some things with Medicaid for the workers that are on an hourly basis and any tenants through small business administration to be able to keep a good business going in a disruptive period. So I'm hopeful those are the two areas we're going to work on and um, and that hopefully this thing goes dormant uh, here when the warm weather comes. Yeah, I think that's what we all could use right now is a, a bit of hope. It's uh a bit overwhelming at times. Thank you for coming on. Fantastic insights as always. And glad that you were able to share those and also share a little hope with us as well. It's always a pleasure having you on. Great. Thanks, Larry. It's always a pleasure to, to chat with our CCIM and our broader real estate audience, everybody. Thanks so much, Casey. Thanks for listening to this episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. Head to SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Join us next month for a brand new episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast, featuring another leading figure from the world of commercial real estate.